Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, you're very welcome to Changemakers. I'm Claire McKenna. Talking to people at the forefront of change, but you should never underestimate the power of conversation. Through the information we share and the conversations we have, we can all be part of the change process. Hello to you all. I hope you are doing well. Here in my world, we're embracing spring like never before. Feeling the weight, perhaps, of what's happening in the world right now. Sunshine, bright evenings and mornings and even the bobbing daffodils have been making their presence known and lifting our mood. We've just had a bumper weekend here of St. Patrick's Day and a bank holiday to say thank you to the frontline workers for their dedication throughout the pandemic. And... I spent the few days with family soaking up the atmosphere around Dublin city centre, everyone mask free and restriction free and it felt good. And we went to see a musical as a family and it's just the little pieces of normality which are giving everyone a bit of a lift and yeah, it feels really good. Today's guest on Changemakers is a friend of mine, Karen Morris O'Leary. And Karen is from New Zealand and she and her husband Rua travelled to Ireland some years back and Karen and I were working at the same PR firm. She was an account manager and I was PA to the managing director and I just loved her instantly. She has a gorgeous spirit and as we were both in our 20s there was lots of time for socialising around work and I got to meet Rua a couple of times and some of their friends and when they decided to get married here in Dublin I was a guest at their wedding as you'll hear. They were the most beautiful couple and they literally adored each other. They were easy and fun to be around and an absolute love story. They certainly left an impression on me. I'll let Karen tell her story of what happened when they left Ireland and travelled back, settling into life and careers back in New Zealand. She has an important lesson for all of us about the mundane, the ordinary in life and how important all of that is. We discuss work-life balance and why we get so wrapped up in what we do for a living that sometimes we forget it's only a small part of our lives and who we are. Karen has poured a tough experience into helping others. We talk about boundaries, non-negotiables, true work wellness, leading from the top, but also the importance of looking out for those around us. And in an always-on culture, we tend to celebrate busyness and wear burnout as a badge of honour. And the pandemic served as a bit of a reset in terms of looking at the way we work. We need to talk more about the importance of rest and recuperation and how taking time to nourish our souls not only means we're leading a more fulfilled life, but it also means we're actually more productive when we're working. It's an incredible story from an incredible person who I am so proud of. 
Here is Karen Morris O'Leary and her Bolognese philosophy. You are very welcome to Changemakers. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me here. Now, I wanted to do this podcast because I'm always fascinated by people who just get that energy to go and 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 do something with something they're passionate about. And your story is a different one in that it was born out of a, a real experience, something changed in your life and that then became a real virtue of yours something you you felt you you needed to do so before we get into all of that can we go way back to you and your husband Rua and a story that I don't even think I know when did you guys first meet yeah wow uh we met when I was 18 years old and he was 23 so we were babies uh, we met at a Christmas party in New Zealand. Uh, we were both working for the same catering company. I was studying for my degree. Uh, and it was kind of love at first sight. As soon as we kind of locked eyes on each other from across the room, I kind of felt everything through my body go, uh-oh. <laughs> it kind of spiraled from there. And um, then it just kind of really kind of grew uh, from there. We grew up together, really and traveled together um as you know we we moved to ireland and and, and lived there together and um, really just had an incredible uh beginning to life as well and um, when did the discussion of traveling first come about i had traveled a little bit i had been very lucky and had grandparents who had uh given us the experience of going to australia but rua had never traveled when i had uh when i met up with him so immediately I knew it was the number one thing we had to do. So it was going to be his first ever OE experience at 25 years old. And we talked about a few things and then we really decided let's go to Ireland as the first ever trip because we wanted to live and work overseas together as a couple. And he had uh, his father, his grandfather was Irish who had left Ireland and moved to New Zealand, obviously, years ago. So he had an Irish passport, half New Zealand Māori and half Irish. So that really landed an anchor for us on where we were going to travel to for the first time together. And did you stop off in loads of places on the way or fly straight into Dublin? We stopped off in Thailand on the way. Uh, so that was Rua's first ever uh, experience. And I remember uh, arriving there and, and wanting to go out immediately and leaving the hotel. And I felt him kind of pull back a little bit because coming from New Zealand and then wandering straight into a, a crazy uh, city where we were in, we were in Bangkok. Uh, and I, then I realized, okay, right, this is fully new for him. Um, we stopped there for a few days and then we did. We came straight to Ireland. And I remember coming off the plane, hopping in a taxi in Dublin and Rua wanting so excited to tell the taxi driver that he was uh, half Irish and half Māori and wanting to tell him that his name was Rua, which is a New, which is a New Zealand Māori name, not knowing that it also meant red in Gaelic. Uh, so it was a very funny conversation, our first few moments. <laughs> and what's it like to do the opposite? Because here in Ireland, we go away to the sunshine and, you know, we go to Australia, we go to New Zealand, we go to Thailand on the traveling trip. That's one of the most popular ones. What's it like to do the opposite, to leave the sunshine and come to the grey? 
you're just so we were just so mesmerized by the people like you know I know I know you guys might must hear this a lot but everyone in Ireland welcomed us like we were long lost friends and that was just an, an incredible experience so regardless of the weather there was so much warmth in the people uh that just I'm still blown away when I think about all the all the moments we had and all the people we met and of course we worked together um in a company you and I and you did leave lead quite a, a settled time there didn't you you were both working you know both in a house share like it was quite a a settled time the traveling stopped you really lived for a little while yeah we we decided that we really wanted to feel all the parts of Ireland as well so we based ourselves in Dublin we had friends who were living in London and traveling huge amount distance of time to get to work and to us that sounded terrible so we knew that we had it lucky we were living in Dublin we're in Dublin too down by the canals I would walk to work and and meet you uh and we just knew we had a much better setup and during the time we just traveled every weekend that we got to all parts of Ireland and and really experienced as a tourist that way and you got married here so when did that decision get made yeah, we were engaged when we arrived. So marriage, working out when the wedding was going to be was was always on the cards. Uh, and then because Rua had an Irish passport and our time there was just, we were loving it. We knew we wanted to get married there. We knew we wanted to get married uh, on the canals and, and really do that in, in, in Ireland. So we did that in 2002. Uh, you were there. You were one of the guests. It was a hilarious night. And then to also keep all of our New Zealand friends and family happy, we flew home three months after that and also did a wedding on the beach. So we got the best of both worlds. Absolutely. And then your time in Ireland came to an end. Did did you both agree on that at the time? Did it just feel like the right time to move on? There were a few things that kind of came into factor. Uh, one, we, we we were starting to really kind of miss family and friends and, and we felt that through Rua. Uh, and so there was a call made there. And then I also came home one day and realised that I wanted an entire industry <laughs> career change. So two things came into and collided together. I was, I was in my job and sitting in a, a meeting in an ad agency and two Kiwi creatives were presenting to me and I realized that I wanted to be on the other side of the table as a creator rather than a account director which I currently was and the best place for me to do that was either going to be going to London when the course looked like 18,000 pound or coming back to New Zealand being with friends and family for a course that was 10,000 New Zealand dollars so that was the call that we made Um, I came back and changed my entire career and Rua and I got to be closer to, to friends and family. And that's so interesting. That's something else I, I didn't know. And like when I think about you at work, you were always super organized, super on it. Um, so to flip to the creative, obviously, you still need all of those skills. It's not just flighty. But was that a change in your mindset as well? Or did you just carry those skills over? Yeah, I think, well, I, I know that the skills have actually really helped me. So I've talked to a few people who jump from suiting and account service into creative roles. There, number one, there's a lot of unlearning that you go through, which is which is fine, just to to make those faster leaps in, into creative spaces. But 
all that organization and knowing how to present your ideas, how to manage really big client relationships are incredible traits to have as a creative person. So I really think that background's helped me a lot. And I mentioned that because you loved your work and now you've said you really found your passion and you followed your passion. And it's the same for so many of us. The pathway that we have in in society is you go to school by and large, you go on to either train in, in some way or get a job, you meet somebody, you settle down and the two go side by side. But we very much tie in who we are with with what we do, don't we? 100%, yeah. And, and you don't find people very often who make these huge kind of flips all the way through. And I think I've really challenged things in, in my career when I, I felt like I was getting a little bit comfortable or my rate of learning was kind of going down. I've, I've really kind of pulled the handbrake and I've never been afraid to kind of start from ground zero again, which can scare a lot of people around me. It terrified Rua when I changed uh, career completely because it meant starting as a student again when I was at account director level making a really good income. So I went all the way down to being a student earning $30,000 a year again, rather than six figures. Um, So a lot of very tense, (laughs) intense conversations, but yes. So where were you at then the night you got the call to come home for dinner? Had you qualified at that stage and you were now working as a creative? Yes. So I had gone through my training. I had been a junior creative. I'd moved into being a midweight creative I had been working in the advertising world for five, six years at that stage, and I'd really given it everything I had. Um, One, because I wanted to prove to Rua that the decision I had made to flip my entire career around was the right one. (laughs) So I was giving it a lot. Probably, you know, I know too much. Um, The night I got the call from Rua to come home from dinner, I was working late in the advertising agency. And I think we're, we're definitely on some type of huge project because I know the deadline was was ridiculous. And I got the call from him around about 6 p.m. It was on a Thursday night. And, you know, we did have a lot of fights about my the time that I was spending at work. And he called me on this particular night and said, babe, I've made uh, my homemade bolognese. You know, please tell me you're in the car on the way home. All I want to do tonight is just have dinner with you. Uh, and for me, those calls, you know, would usually not end very well. Um, I'd usually put up a bit of a fight and want to stay a little bit longer. But there was something in his voice on this particular night where I just responded with yes and, and hopped in the car and went home. And what sort of working hours would you have been working at that time? Was it the the, the norm to come in, in the morning and stay till late at night? 100%. And Anyone who's kind of worked in the advertising world uh, will will relate to this. Uh, leaving at 6 p.m. <laughs> back then was definitely seen as early. Uh, I would constantly be working late, if not at home, coming in early weekends. It's the nature of the beast in the advertising world uh, with pitches and, and deadlines and, and timelines that are made that uh, a lot of the time just don't really factor in human living and uh, time for rest, unfortunately, but that is the norm in the advertising world. Um, I'd like to say things are changing, uh, but I still have a lot of friends on that side who are pretty close to burnout right now. 
And I mean, we'll get to, to ruin now. We, we have to. But aside from him and, and your marriage, where did that leave your family? Where did that leave you seeing your friends? Where did that leave you going to exercise or chill out? That None of that was happening as much as it should have. No. And I think back to it now and, you know, I feel terrible, but I also had a really good family that could just see how passionate I was. Not And I wish they'd probably challenged me a little bit more because I can see how blinded I was by ambition to to just achieve in my career. And I can't go back and make more time because I've, I've made those choices and I have to, to stick with it. But now if I'm given a deadline and there's any um, really key thing that I need to be present for, I push back. Um, I can't make up for lost time, but I've definitely completely changed the way that I say yes and no to things based on um, the stories that I've been through. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's not even you necessarily who has to answer to that, but it's the very way we structure our work. I mean, I've often said to work colleagues, God, I see more of you than I see of my own family. That's how we we set it up. But we'll get into that a little bit more about how we can create those boundaries. But you did go home that day. And I think what's important as well in your story is you went in to tell your colleagues who were all getting ready to stay and order in pizza and work into the night that you were going to go. And, and what was their reaction? Yeah, and I was I had so much anxiety walking back in to say that I was leaving at 6 p.m. I was like, oh, no, uh, the guilt that washed over me in that moment. I could feel it now and I think about it, which is crazy. Uh, when, when I walked back in and said to everyone, look, you know, I promised to be somewhere. I really need to leave. Um, they were really good. And that was massive for me, the fact I I was always kind of there late, so I think they were a little they were caught off guard, and they knew it was really important to me because I'd never kind of walked in and announced, "Hey, team, I need to be somewhere. I'll catch up with you guys in the morning." They were very supportive. They all said, "Of course," um, and, and kind of let me go. And I think that's just a really big part of where we are at the moment is how we support each other, how we understand what is important for each person. Um, it's just such a it's such a big thing, you know. Avoiding burnout doesn't happen individually; it happens as a collective when we look out for each other. So you went home. What do you remember from that night? I remember arriving in the in the driveway and giving myself a little high five for only being twenty minutes late. I remember opening the front door. Uh, and there he was with this huge smile on his face because he was equally uh, as happy that I'd made it home. And he handed me his bowl of bolognese that he had already, um, really, really, really proud, a really good bolognese, by the way. Uh, and we had a really lovely night in. We watched a romantic movie that um, I was surprised he let me watch because he didn't want to watch it the previous night. <laughs> Um, and it was just a really lovely, great night in together. Now he went off. Was it for um, a, a, a friend's weekend, or it was a, some kind of holiday he left for the the following day? Correct. Yeah, he he left uh, to go to Sydney for a boys' weekend away. Um, I was planning to go, but I had work, so I had decided not to go and to to give myself some space. 
So he was going and it was the first trip he'd ever taken uh, without me there, which was, uh, it still, you know, kind of sits with me a bit as well. Sometimes it's best to just leave the boys to it though, isn't it? That's what you're thinking. You know, let them go, have their fun, of course. But I suppose it became symbolic because you got a call from that weekend, didn't you? Who who was the person to call you? Yeah, I did. It was a, a series a series of events that kind of rolled out really where there was a moment where no one could work out where he was, which is very unusual for him. Um, usually I get a call or a text and I had put it down to the fact that I hadn't packed his phone charger. So, you know, a typical wife is always like, oh, it's my fault. His phone's died. We can't quite get hold of him. He's going to be fine. Um, and then I got the, the call that there had been an accident and that he had fallen and uh, had died instantly. So he was on a boys' weekend in Sydney and had tried to be typical Rua, which is uh, 10 foot tall and, and bulletproof, and tried to leap from one space to another in a, in a car park and uh, had slipped and fallen, um, which is, yeah, that was how we lost him the, the kind of following day, really. So that bowl of bolognese that we had together was um, our last meal and I just go over and over in that in my head all the time of I'm just so thankful I had that night as normal and as ordinary as it seemed we had that and I can't even imagine what it would have been like if I had missed it. And I've seen you you talk about it. You have a a video up on on YouTube, and and you've you've spoke. You've become a keynote speaker to people on this. And you know, you say, "Did I did I tell him the bolognese was amazing? Did I say I love you?" But then I think what you've said there is so important. Just that that ordinariness. You know, you were there. Sometimes that's all we need, and I bet sometimes that's what you really crave when you miss him. Is the really boring simple stuff oh yeah like I've had you know many conversations even things like his snoring you know like the things you used to complain about I remember being a few months into the grieving process and just breaking down crying and thinking god I just want to hear him snoring next to me you know the the one thing that I used to want to um, nudge him in the ribs for I would have given in anything just to to be a and annoyed by that sound again but yeah you kind of really take stock of all the moments and especially in those last few months like you know you go back over it like a tape recorder in your head did I you know what was I did I tell him the right things did he know that he was loved um did I really take as much time as I can as I could to uh, remind him how much I loved him but yeah how did you piece yourself back together? I don't know how you did it. I'm sure the weeks and, and months after that shock were a, a blur. Yeah, like I was so, so lucky. I had the most incredible support system around me, like unbelievable. Um, a best friend that was just with me every single day, Bex, I had an incredible friend, Tara, who moved back from the UK and lived with me to look after me. 
um, the most incredible friends and family who were just all there um, as I broke down in epic proportions. <laughs> um, and they just were there and held me as I went through it. Uh, but that whole first year was just my body. I mean, I lost so much weight. I just wanted to run from everything. Um, social anxiety was huge. I tried to return to a working environment a couple of times and just got really big panic attacks and would retreat back to the house. <laughs> but it was just really open and, and transparent with everybody along that process um, and just did, did what I could. But I'm just so thankful for the support that I had around me. Um, they really helped me get through it. I don't know what I would have done without them. Was the returning point or is it a gradual thing that you just start to get stronger? I thought about this a lot and I was in that first year and I was still in a real grief hole. It was still dark. I have, I have moments of being really happy and joyful and then I just plunge into the darkness and I sat and thought about it. It's like, what do I do? What do I do for myself to really turn the corner? And I came to the idea that I needed to plunge myself into, into something else to give me perspective. So I uh, packed up my stuff and went to Africa as a volunteer to help build classrooms uh, over there in a, in a little place called Gulu. And I did that for about five weeks that was the best thing to help me sort out my own head and to understand uh, the importance of my life in this world and what I can do to, to, to what, how I can offer and to help and be of service. So the turning point for me was to understand how to return up out of the grief and to offer service to others. Um, that was my turning point, 100%. What about then the the Bolognese philosophy and and turning what happened to you into becoming a, a message for others? Because that's such an important part of your your grieving process. If you hadn't gone home that night, it would have hurt all the more. Not that it's a competition for you know how hurt can one be when you get such a shock like that. Um, but that really helped you. You had that night together. One year, definitely. And I, I sat with that for a while. Um, how do I take the mess of my experience and turn this into a message for others? And it just kept coming back to me that I had to get it out. And I wasn't sure how. I wasn't sure how to package it. I wasn't sure how people would best receive it. And then it all kind of came to a head when I was working um, in Melbourne. I'd moved to Melbourne uh, to work in the technology sector. And I was asked to get up and tell a vulnerable story about a big lesson that I'd learned in my career so far. And I got up to a small group. It was only about 20 of us. And I told the lesson of, I call it the Bolognese story at that stage, and told them about how I almost missed this meal and how it's become my guiding light to really check everything in Bolognese time and what Bolognese time means to everyone around us. Is it date night like it was for me or is it being the first face that your children see after school or time with your mum or just to your point of getting in some, some self-care and some exercise, whatever 
bolognese time means for you, we need to help each other get home for it. So the story started there, which was called Get Home for the Bolognese and started off really kind of small and the response that I started getting by one telling a human story that was very real and very vulnerable and then backing it up with this you know philosophy of what does bolognese time mean for you just really started hitting a chord with people and I was like ha this is how I can help uh, serve and use this story and, and help others uh, really realign their values in the way that we're working together. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because we were talking earlier about, you know, the long hours you were working, but that's not putting you in the dock. That's putting the way we structure our working lives and the importance we put on our our working lives and and family and our loved ones because they're omnipresent it's easy to take them for granted they're very much part of the of our our fabric um and our working and our striving and our getting more and more and more that's what's instilled in us from when we we sit in a classroom oh it so is and I, you know i've gone over this as like where did we lose the way where did we stop doing human first workplaces where did you know the profit and timelines of of businesses really supersede wellness and health and where are all the leaders that we need that understand that burnout is not only so bad for business because productivity drops staff turnover is high but the generational influence this is having on the children around us and what they're growing up with is just huge. So I've really spent the last few years trying to unpack that and ask a lot of questions, understand the state of where lots of different countries are currently at with burnout and how we really unpick this and use this historic time that COVID has presented as a reset button. And to really just slow down and work out how do we need to work to look after our mental health and our wellness and to understand that burnout is now a medical diagnosis. This is real and it's really having a huge impact on people's lives. And we also hear about anxiety levels going through the roof, stress related illness and disease. And you hear people talking about the blurred lines between work-life balance and when people are in work they're guilty 
that they're not at home and when they're at home, they're guilty that they're not in work and people are opening laptops and sitting on their phones at the kitchen table. Um, I think you're right. I think COVID has made people reassess. But when you were first starting out, those blurred lines were still very much there. Definitely. Uh, they were there and they're still, they're still present now. I mean, the things that I'm seeing, the, the burnout rates during COVID, uh, the pressure that we're putting on ourselves, even in hybrid roles and remote roles, is huge. I think uh, it's because there's a combination of fear and uncertainty around job security in, in some areas. So we're overdoing it uh, and we're jeopardizing our, our wellness that way. Um, I just read this morning the latest stats for New Zealand, my home country. It's risen from one in 10 to one in three who are now suffering extreme burnout. That's huge. So it's really asking ourselves now, what, what are we lying to ourselves about? What really, we know what hasn't been working. So what are we going to do about it? And now is the time to, to really reset. And look, like we said, you know, finding your passion in life and your and your work is so tied up in your identity and it is incredible. You know, some people are working all manner of jobs from the health service to what you're saying you did in, in Africa. There are people giving of their time 24-7 for a variety of reasons, but it's just the whole lesson that you've learned that tomorrow is not guaranteed with the people we love and doing the things that we that light us up and that that nourish us. And you hear of kids being dropped to, to crashes in the morning and picked up and they're back in their pajamas. And there's just something not right. But you're not only talking in your philosophy about getting home, you're talking about being more productive in the office because I mean you might remember from working with me I always really struggled to sit in the one place from nine until five I just never really understood why once your work and tasks were done for the day why you couldn't just leave now maybe that was me in my 20s but you know this presentism that you just have to be sitting at this desk surely we can just set people tasks and they achieve them and then they move on isn't that how work should be Yes, you know, your instinct was oh, on the money all the way back then, Claire. I mean, you know, you were right. There were these, you know, you know, part of this culture has always been be in your chair, be present. You know, and there are some some cultures uh, that are really heavy on that. You know, there's a a, a term in, in Japanese culture which is uh, a, a, a linked to dying at your desk. So which is, blows my mind that there's even a word for that. So this is what we're up against as far as conditioning comes from and being seen to be present. But you're right. Uh, to really look after people is to understand by all, we just need to work out championing product, productivity during work hours. And then if tasks are completed, how does that person, how do we then champion rest so that person comes back even more productive the next time? And then it's, really guarding each other's time off as well I mean one thing I, I've seen and, and I've I've been guilty of this we book time off to go and get much needed rest and rejuvenation next thing we're still just checking a few emails in the inbox then we're responding to a few little office fires we need to put out because no one else will be able to do it unless we get in there and fix it next thing we know our beautiful time off that we really need with friends and family and to rest is already 20 to 30% eaten up with work. So it's as much on us as individuals 
to reset these boundary lines uh, as it is for the teams around us to make sure we're doing it as well because we're really shortchanging ourselves at this stage and if we shortchange ourselves from wellness and rest and time with people then we shortchange the world and it just changes what we get we've got to give and it is one of our human rights to rest and have leisure which is something I've only heard from you yeah uh, the right to rest so the right to rest and the right for adequate recovery time from working as well it is uh, from the United Nations uh, Bill of Human Rights and I never knew it was in there either until I started doing a little bit of research and when I found that that rest isn't as a human right it really set the tone for so many things that I approached after that. And you talk about leading well, that this has to come from the top, that this has to be a culture within each place of work. So it's I, I think it's really important that we as people create our own boundaries and put down our phones and, and all that, because it's really hard because it's an always on culture that we're already we've already opted in. So, yes, you have to make your own personal boundaries, but I don't think it should always be on the worker to be asking permission every time. I don't think you should be afraid to either, but it's so much nicer when it's just a culture from the top down. Agree. And it depends what environment you are in. Like I really uh, look for ways to help and meet people wherever they are. So some people may be in a structure that is just so big that trying to get top-down help immediately may just be a little bit out of reach. So the way I like to try and frame it is maybe it's just starting with finding one person that you can team up with to look out for each other. And if you can get, you know, top-down leaders to do this, fantastic. That's the best way to do it. But also, you know, find one other person to back you up. Find your Bolognese buddy who's going to check on you on a weekly basis uh, and you can support them as well. So coming at it from both angles, I think, uh, is the best way to do it. Yeah. And just this idea that busyness is not a badge of honour and burnout is not something to be congratulated. You want to keep an eye out for a team member and say, you head home, let's let's go. So you've been approaching different companies. It's it, it's morphed on from that that talk that you gave. Um, what kind of take up have you had? I mean, you're living in the US now for one of the biggest tech companies in the world. Have they adopted the Bolognese philosophy? Yes, uh, they are amazing. There's also there's a, a, a really good example of that would be they've named one of the offices in the LA office home for Bolognese. So that is, it was massive. And I remember when I walked in and, and I saw the, the name on the meeting room, and I just burst into tears <laughs> to see Home for Bolognese as a meeting room in Los Angeles um, just made my heart swell. Uh, the, it's been an incredible pickup and it's been global as well as on this side of the world, obviously, because I have um, connections in, in New Zealand and Australia as well. A lot of advertising agencies because they can relate to the past that I've had and, you know, there are a lot of people who are still um, really thick into that culture of those long deadlines. Uh, and also just an incredible range of, of different companies. I've had construction companies who just really respond to the human story uh, and, you know, the, the 
the bolognese and the meal and and breaking it down into whatever bolognese time means and creating those boundaries um and then just incredible leaders as well i did a summit a virtual summit recently which was for 5000 uh, female agency leaders globally for 30 countries and that was incredible going to your point before about top down being able to talk to them and get the bolognese philosophy out to that many leaders in one go was was really fantastic and the response from that has been it's been incredible i mean you're you're very much into spreading the idea that bolognese philosophy is for everyone it cuts through race gender religion and you find whatever it is that you need to nourish your soul but i did want to ask you your thoughts on men and women when it comes to the work-life balance and is it something that you think can be harder for men or women and i i think of it because i read cheryl sandberg's book she's the coo of of Facebook, her book, Lean In. And one of her boundaries is she doesn't miss dinner with her kids. And when she took on the job, that's what she said it was. And I kind of remember thinking, I bet more women do that than men. I think it's nearly harder sometimes for men because it's just not been done before. Women are kind of stepping up in the workforce. So that's a little bit different. Whereas men, it's a it's a complete flip. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's a really interesting conversation because I've had a lot of men respond to the Bolognese philosophy uh, with huge emotions. So I've seen um, guys just break down and cry when they hear the story and they are reminded that jolt of being caught in the haze of, you know, just skipping those family meals. Um, So 100% I love the fact that it really is getting response equally from men and from women. I love seeing women lead the charge by taking it, uh, especially as you said, with with Cheryl, like just having that one boundary of dinner time and really sticking to that and letting everyone around you know that that is your non-negotiable bolognese time is making sure that you're always at the table for for dinner with the kids. But yeah, um, I think guys do struggle because there is a, a certain a certain conditioning to the way that they have always been seen to be working as leaders. And I'm always super excited when I see really big uh, male leaders of huge big companies uh, adopt this and uh, really kind of set the precedent from the top down and, and lead by example. I had an interesting conversation recently about how do how do people in, in bigger companies set the boundaries for everyone else, like their suppliers and their clients and their customers. Like, how do you get into this ecosystem? And the easiest way is to just really be open about your boundaries. So as Cheryl has done, you know, let your clients and customers know, well, hey, I, I, you know, my boundary is I'm after 6 p.m. I'm not available until the following day. And the more that we do that as individuals and show other people, it inspires them to have their own boundaries. So at the moment, at the end of all my emails, I have a little note that says, if this email is received after 6 p.m., it will be viewed the following day. And I know that that goes out every single day to anyone who's getting a message from me or is in dialogue with me. So just those little things that you can do no matter where you are, to start inspiring others is really powerful. Yeah. And I think people even read that and go, 
yeah, she's right. Why don't I put that at the end of my email? So I think you're right. It does have a sort of a a ripple effect. I worked in a, a radio station once and one of the, the news anchors, she used to do the evening shift and she did a sort of a, an open letter on social media, which sparked a really important conversation because everywhere she went, people would say, oh, no, you don't get to do bedtime. And yet her husband was never asked that. And like I say, she sparked a really important conversation. But I never had really thought about why nobody ever asked her husband, because sometimes sympathy can seem like a patronizing term, but nobody had any empathy that he was missing the family time, whereas at least it was there. I hope we're beginning to break down those those gender roles, particularly with all the work you're doing. So aside from some of the tips you've given for people with their personal boundaries, how does an organization take on your, your Bolognese philosophy? Sure. Uh, some really easy steps and it can, it can be a, a spectrum of ways to approach it. Number one is go to bolognaseephilosophy.com. There is a video there that you can send a link to anyone in your team and really get them to open up a crucial conversation about what Bolognese time means to people around you. So the first thing I, I, I usually recommend is to, to set up a meeting with uh, any of the immediate people around you in your in your circle, uh, whether that be with another person, whether you are a manager and you are in charge of you know the well-being of your staff, create a meeting, send out that link. Then if everyone feels comfortable, have a call and go around and ask people what Polonaise time means to them. What are their non-negotiable reasons that they need to stop to rest and be nourished and to be with loved ones. And I tell you what, you'll learn things about the people around you that you have never learned before. And it's never been more important to do that. And that's just a really easy, free thing that anyone can start to do now. Once you understand what Bolognese time means to the people around you, you can, you know, really understand how to structure timelines, what best works for people, and, you know, just create a much happier and more nourishing environment. A next step would be, on the website, you'll also see uh, I've created a, a workplace agreement or a guardian, uh, a guardian, a Bolognese guardian oath. So the agreement is just something that if you sometimes we just need to physically sign and date something to declare that we're on board. Uh, so the workplace agreement actually is an agreement to just look out for each other and to honor each other's Bolognese time, uh, no matter what it may be. And then the personal oath is just you finding one other person that you are really deciding to uh, declare to back and to look after on this journey in the workplace. So those are, are two ways in um, that are really easy and approachable. And it just starts the conversation. So it's not just something that's said at one board meeting. It's very much a, an inclusive thing that everybody talks about and everybody gets on, on board with. You touched on it earlier, this time of COVID, and I certainly saw it. I know I've 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 interviewed a woman a, a lot about remote working, um, and she says, "Look, being jammed up in the corner of your bedroom in the middle of a pandemic with your laptop on your knee is not remote working." But we did get a bit of an eye opener into not commuting, that you can work anywhere. There's one guy in particular that pops into my mind who is from the very north of Ireland, um, but has been living and working in Dublin. And once the pandemic hit, he headed up there. He still continued 
to hit all his targets, keep all his clients happy, go to all his meetings remotely and surf four times a week, which he hasn't done since he was a teenager. And when he was telling me this over the phone, he he sounded like a child. So Uh it's just that, isn't it? Do you think we will get to keep it? I mean, I know nobody wants to keep the pandemic going. There's so much bad stuff that goes with it. But there's a small part of me as it rumbles on that thinks, no, we need a little bit longer to get the lesson. If it all just ended in one year, we'd pick straight back up to where we we were and we'd forget the lessons. Do you do you feel that? Do you think we'll learn the lessons? Yes, I agree. And the the fascinating thing that I'm seeing uh, in my side of the world is the entire working structure that I'm involved in has completely changed and it will never go back to where it was. So. There's some light. Uh, an example would be during the pandemic, I've become 100% remote um, and I'm not going back. I uh, have been extremely lucky to be given the option and uh, offered full-time remote work. And that really works for me in my situation. Um, so I am continuing this with the structure that I have in there to really look after myself. Um, Working remotely does work for me. I I know that it doesn't work for everybody. You know, there are so many different scenarios where it can and can't work. So I'm really respectful of that. Um, I'm hoping that there will be hybrid models that will come out of this a little bit as well, to your point about, you know, not needing to be sitting in a seat and how we work the hybrid model. I'm seeing that pop up in a few organizations. So I think we are at an incredible turning point that COVID has presented us with where people have been functioning in their jobs, you know, and doing a good and and actually doing them without needing to be in the office. So it has changed the structure of so many businesses uh, and that will continue. I mean, I'm even seeing the growth in remote working companies and the way that people hire uh, the amount of remote f- roles that I'm seeing go up in LinkedIn is a fantastic sign of how much the industry is changing as well. Yeah. And I mean, even the way corporate wellness is huge now and even how we view frontline workers and that kind of shift work where you're right, sometimes remote isn't going to to work, but we're we're showing more appreciation and we're knowing the people People need to rest and and reset after work like that. So, yeah, I hope our eyes continue to be open and the culture changes. What about you then, Karen? How are you these days? Do you get to find your your bolognese? I know you've continued to to travel. Travel became a big thing and now you're you're settled in in California. Do you get to to mind yourself and find your bolognese? Yes, I'm. I class myself as an extremely uh, lucky person. I'm in a job that I love. I'm surrounded by people who are extremely respectful of of rest and recovery. And I really did kind of have made the most of, of, of things so far. So when I overnight living in LA, when COVID hit, had no office and I was like, hang on a minute. So hang, I don't have to go to the office, but I'm working 100% remote. I can pick up, pack up my place and go somewhere else and work. And it's like overnight, slowly trying to process what does this mean? And like, okay. Uh, and so I've traveled around America for the last year uh, and had time in different places. And 
really made the most of being in places where I could step out the door and get that rest and recovery and, and you know, really enjoy traveling while still working full time. Um, obviously, from the lesson that I've learned, I am constantly aware of uh, making sure that I'm putting my best foot forward as far as rest and recovery for all those around me. I do get a little, still a little get caught up in work because I get so excited. <laughs> is my biggest fault um and I need to take those moments and those times but um morning for me and I have my rules which is I really need to exercise in the morning and have my space in the morning so as a remote worker people really think you're going to be online at 7 a.m because you're not traveling but you still need to protect that time in the morning because that's your time and then at night I always uh, need to see the sunset is one of my non-negotiables so that I know that I haven't missed a day um, by being at work. So I protect those times. I bookend protect those times. Well, I think you're incredible. I can't believe you're still going to the gym before work. That used to sicken me 20 years ago. <laughs> and you still do that now. But what really gets me more than anything is your your huge heart and that you've turned something so tough into something so beautiful and a, and a message to everybody. And I'm so glad that you got to make it home for Bolognese that night and have your your last dinner with your gorgeous husband and that you have chose to live even after that heartbreak and, and to watch you have such an incredible adventure as you are now. Um, thank God for social media so I can see where you are and you really are grabbing life with both hands. I applaud you. 100%. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad, just really glad that I found a way to, you know, as I said before, turn my mess into a, into a message. And it just helps me make sense of it all in a way to just to remind people that this, this happens. Like, you know, and I know people have experienced that even more with COVID, with losing loved ones at a much higher rate than, um, you know, a sudden death like I did with Rua. But these things happen and time, we're in a forever themed world when our time is finite and um, we just can't forget that. Well, people can find out more at bolognesephilosophy.com. Karen Morris O'Leary, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. 